Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 23 of Clear and Vivid. I'm here with Graham Shedd, our producer, and we're going to give you a taste of what's to come this season. We have a fascinating lineup of guests. Wouldn't you say, Graham? Well, of course, otherwise we wouldn't be clear and vivid, would we? Uh, (laughs) This is actually going to be a preview of a few of the dozen or so shows. We've got half a dozen we're going to be playing today, clips of. And, uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me about these, about the whole season, in fact, is that while each of your guests is full of information and facts, they're also great storytellers. Mm. And all of that information is, is embedded often in wonderful personal stories. And I think you'll get a taste of that listening to the next few minutes. And as always, our conversations are mostly about relating and communicating, sometimes from an unexpected angle. For instance, it's hard to have a conversation with someone if you can't remember who you're talking to. And that's where memory expert Frank Felberbaum comes in. Graham and I first met Frank a couple of decades ago on the television series we did called Scientific American Frontiers. The things Frank can do with his memory are amazing like learning the names of a hundred people in just a few minutes. And he can show us how he does it. Is there a trick that I can employ to remember a feature of a face, or is it easier to remember one feature than the whole face? Yes. If you try to remember the entire face, then you have multiple features coming at you. What you want to do is hone in and focus on one area. Like I told you to focus on my nose. I could focus on your nose, you know, or or your forehead, you know, whatever. And you could do the same thing. Everybody you meet, just in that first five seconds, choose one feature. And there's always something on somebody's face that stands out. Maybe their eyebrow, one eyebrow is thicker than the other. Maybe their cheekbones are high. Maybe their chin is pointed. Maybe their forehead is very high, which means they're very smart. You have a high forefront, and I have one. (laughs) (laughs) Smart and bold. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't choose glasses, though. No, because you you could take Glasses, mustache, and beard. They can change. They 
Right. They could shave that off. They could, they could get contacts and then you're stuck. One thing that I do is when I meet somebody for the first time, I do all the things we talked about, but then I use what we call the look away technique. I make, you know, if I'm at a cocktail party, I'll have a drink in my hand. I'll sort of look up in the sky, you know, like I'm thinking about something. But what I'm doing is visualizing that person's face and name in my mind. Uh. And that little extra step solidifies that name and face in your mind. It sort of it connects, it makes the connection stronger so that when you try to access it at a later date or maybe five minutes later, uh, which most people have a problem with, they meet somebody at a party, five minutes later, they don't know their name and because they didn't do anything. They just listened. I have a bigger problem remembering faces than most people do, but we pretty much all forget where we put things, like forgetting where we put our keys. Let's say you're in your office and you're about to leave or you're at home you're, and you have your keys in your hand and the phone rings and you pick up the phone and you put your keys down somewhere and you're talking 10, 15 minutes. You put the phone down. Where are my keys? And you spend 15 minutes looking for your keys. Oh, this is a good, and, this is a good tip. What do you do? How do you avoid oh, that? Okay. I'll, this will ensure that you never do this again. Okay, it's called a multi-sensory technique. You put the keys in your mouth. <laughs> well, that good, but you you take <laughs> you take uh, the keys before you pick up the phone. Yeah, you you put them down on the desk. Now you're looking at it and you're touching it. So using your sense of touch and your sense of sight, and when you put it down, you say out loud, "I'm putting the keys on my desk." So now you're using your speaking voice and you're listening to your speaking voice. Four areas of your senses are working to put those keys down and remember it. Then you pick up the phone. That, that whole thing that you did takes five to 10 seconds. You pick up the phone, you talk as long as you want, you hang up, guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, you will remember where your keys are. A few years ago, Stephanie Land had a best-selling book called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. Barack Obama even called it a single mother's personal, unflinching look at America's class divide. The book led to a widely praised Netflix series, and it changed her life. Stephanie Land's now written a new book, vividly chronicling how it was her lifelong passion for writing that led her to escaping the poverty trap. The first step was college. I took out the maximum amount of loans every semester. Um, and I used the loans mainly to cover living expenses, which were incredibly low at that time. Like, I think about it now. And I, my living expenses were usually somewhere around um, $1,000, give or take. But uh, that worked out almost exact to the amount that I was borrowing in student loans every year. After I graduated, I went home and um, took off my, you know, gown and everything and, and just felt so guilty for, mm. for going to college just because I knew the student loan payments were going to kick in in six months or so. And, and 
And I was really going to struggle with that for the rest of my life. And, and I, you know, as a person with anxiety, of course, that snowballs into, I failed my kids, I'm not going to be able to put them through college. And um, so it, it was never something that I felt entitled to, or that I even deserved, just because it was so extravagant. And you had no idea that you'd even be able to make some kind of living from writing, right? What did you hope, maybe be a teacher or what? That was the original plan. Um, I I wanted to get my um, master's degree uh, and master's of fine arts um, so that I could teach uh, in on a college level. Um, I had a, I assumed that that would be a good job and job security and um, and it would be something that could offer benefits and and that I I could do happily. Um, and so when I found out that I didn't get into the MFA program, uh, I I had to readjust my goals and all of my visions and and everything. And and I ended up uh, learning how to freelance. Um, and just kind of got lucky and, and had a essay go viral, uh, that eventually turned into the book made. Um, but that's, I started getting a lot of jobs because everyone had read that essay. I remember a couple of wonderful scenes in the book where you got encouragement from one teacher who said, looking at a short piece you wrote, called it Solid Gold. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading it and thinking, boy, this is so vivid and concrete what it was like to clean out bathrooms of men who didn't flush the toilets. <laughs> so, yeah. There's something so so clear about that. <laughs> so the solid gold moment was as clear as imagining an unflushed toilet. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Well, it, it, it's it's hard to miss the uh, the feeling you must have gone through. And the other thing that sticks in my mind is the teacher who gave you so much encouragement. Was it that essay she read in the coffee shop? Yeah, yeah. She read the the Confessions of the Housekeeper was what I was calling it back then. And you, you were getting coffee and you came back with your coffee and she said what? She said, Stephanie, this is going to be a movie. <laughs> This needs to be a book. Don't you see how this needs to be a book? Um, yeah. It's I, so I had that, that kind of encouragement from people you trust. So important, isn't it? It's, um, it's priceless. I mean, it's, uh, it can change the course of your life uh, to have, especially a person in authority, a person who is a mentor and, you know, a person who is like literally teaching you to tell you that you're good, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that you're a very good writer. There's, there's another, that scene in the book where she, it's Deborah Magpie Erling. Um, she told my daughter in front of me, you know, your mom is a very good writer and I'm, my daughter doesn't remember that moment, but I'll never forget it. It's, yeah. yeah. 
Stephanie also talks about what it's been like to go from food stamps to being a public figure in just three years, which has been, as she puts it, pretty overwhelming and traumatising. Her new book is called Class, and it's out in a couple of weeks. Another book out next month is a wonderful exploration of why we all love games. Marcus de Sotoy is not only a renowned mathematician, but also Professor of the Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University. So, of course, we had to have him as a guest. His book is called Around the World in 80 Games. What I've enjoyed in this book is something that I've been passionate about for years, which is whenever I travel, and I travel a lot for my mathematics, um, is the country that I'm visiting, discovering what it is, what's the game in that country that they love to play? And does that give me some insight into the culture that I'm visiting? And, And I've really discovered that games really vary from one region to the other. So, for example, when I travel in India, uh, a place which has discovered wonderful mathematics, including the number zero, for example, um, they really enjoy games of chance. They enjoy giving their fate up to the role of a dice. Um, For example, snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders, I think you call it in the US. That is a game that originated in India. Interestingly, it's a game which is helping people to to learn about uh, the impact of morals on your life. So if you're going up a ladder, it's a, you know, good karma. And if you're going down a snake, it's because you're being drunk and you're being sent back. So it's actually about a game capturing the idea of reaching nirvana, which is uh, beautiful. And then became simplified when it was brought by the English to, uh, you know, during colonial times and it became a kid's game. But actually it was a game for moral tuition. But then if you go to somewhere like China, China does not like giving themselves up to the role of a dice. They like being in control. And so you see games like like Go and Chinese chess uh, and There's also a very competitive side to India, for example. That's where chess formed, which is a very aggressive game where you take pieces off the board. It's a real battle, whilst Go is a a real territory game. It's still a kind of game of warfare, but this is a, a much kind of calmer, gradually controlling areas of land in the game. So, so it's been really fascinating uh, writing this book and doing the research over the many years that I spent traveling, sort of seeing the, the culture reflected in the games that uh, the people play in those countries. Marcus got me wondering about that. Wherever you go in the world, there are games. I wondered what he thinks there is about games that makes them so popular, and not only with kids, but humans at every age. And I think there's something rather uh, wonderful about playing a game together, because you're actually sharing a space and exploring, in a way, each other's consciousness. It's a bit like a dance when you play a game with somebody. And just in the same way as we sat around the campfire telling stories as a way of sharing our inner worlds and exploring the inner worlds of the other, I think playing games might also have played a similar function. Um, so that's, I think, you know, the idea of, of a shared space, a safe space to be able to explore a relationship with the other, um, I think is maybe one of the motivations for why games are so popular. But one of the things that is important is that maybe 
we shouldn't be looking for utility, that this is actually about fun and enjoyment. And so now a game isn't about trying to uh, find some evolutionary uh, explanation for why we're playing Monopoly or or Bridge, um, but that actually we are reaching a stage where we have the space to do things that we enjoy doing rather than just having to work for the sake of work. So uh, utopia, I think, will be the human species sitting around playing games whilst the artificial intelligence does all the hard work for us. (laughs) As long as it doesn't kill us. (laughs) Exactly. But maybe we should explore through a game how to stop that happening. (laughs) You don't come across too many astronomers from Afghanistan. Abraham Amiri's journey to founding a nationwide network of Afghan students wanting to learn about the stars was an attempt to change that. It's a journey that began on a rooftop in Peshawar in Pakistan, where his parents had taken the family to escape the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. The nights were so hot, the family slept on the roof of their house. Sleeping on the rooftop would just help you a little bit uh, to like fight that, that, that uh, heat and, and humidity in some way. But then, uh, on the other hand, I, I had the, this wonderful opportunity to look up at the night sky filled with thousands of bright stars, no city lights, nothing. It was on, on moonless nights, I used to get the best views of the Milky Way. And then, more interestingly, my mother, who still remembers all of the fairy tales that, that her grandmother told her when she was a kid, she would passionately just uh, tell us all these wonderful stories and, and we would listen to her and staring at the night sky and the stars, like I would fall asleep. Uh, I, I, one, of, one of these years, I, I don't quite remember if it was 1996 or seven, when somebody said that, oh, there's a, there's a star in the sky that has a tail. And I, I couldn't believe that because I was like, I, I look at stars every every night, but I don't see a star with a tail. How how is that possible? And then we all ran into the rooftop, and and really the first time I saw the comet Hale Bopp. I mean, which I, I didn't know about the name of the comet or about its nature, but I, I looked at the star and I was like so amazed. I was like, what? Why does it have a tail? And then my mom told me, well, it's a queen star, and whoever sees it will you know, become a fortunate person in the future. <laughs> it, it definitely changed my life. And I feel fortunate for being who I am today. What struck me most vividly about Abraham's determination to become an astronomer was how he built his own telescope. This was when the family was back home in Kabul. In one of my uh, physics books, at, uh, when I was an ele- 11th grader in high school, uh, there was a chapter about uh, the the, tele- the like refractor telescopes and how they work. Um, so uh, when I looked at that, I was just oh, that's a basic uh, idea. You just ha- have to have two magnifying glasses with different focal lengths, and you just put the glasses in in appropriate places inside a tube, and and you could make the telescope. So that's how. Uh, I first learned the theory and then I collected all my tools and equipment to to put them together and actually it worked. Where did you get the tube? 
Oh, so the tube has a very interesting story. So, well, we, we used to, because Kabul was a, a was a cold place, as opposed to Peshawar's like hot summers, it had very cold winters. So we, and very long winters, like full of snow. So we, we used to have uh, these uh, like chimneys or like heaters that had these long pipes. And uh, since it, it the winter was over, so my mom had put the, the heater in a corner of, of the yard. I just went there and took one of the, the tubes and the pipes and I, I cut it to the size that I needed. So, well, to be honest, I... I <laughs> I got uh, I uh, I got like beaten by my mom for that because because she she thought I, I I destroyed her heater and and I, I, actually I did that but but uh, uh, <laughs> as a, as a return I was able to uh, see the 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 moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn I saw the distinct stars of Pleiades and I saw many many more stars in the Pleiades cluster. Uh, and I definitely saw thousands and thousands, even millions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> that must have been so exciting for you. How old were you at that point? Oh, I was uh, 17. Abraham spent the next several years turning his passion for astronomy into a passion for telling others about astronomy. In fact, he founded the Afghanistan Association of Astronomy, a network of some 180 clubs around the country, but with thousands of participants. That all came crashing down when the Taliban took over in 2021. Taliban have problem with education in general, not just with, with astronomy, because they know that science has the ability to promote critical thinking. You cannot solve a math problem without thinking. You cannot solve a physics problem without thinking. So, And they don't want people to think. That's why astronomy is more detested by the Taliban because it has a nature of asking big questions like who created the universe and how long did it take? And it challenges all their Ptolemaic model that still exists in, in their religious texts in Quran, which is definitely talking about seven skies and a flat earth and, and things like that. And so astronomy comes and challenges all these ideas. So uh, it's, it's very obvious that they definitely not want that to happen. Fearing he'd be a target of the Taliban, Abraham left Afghanistan last year. He's now in the astronomy department at UCLA, where he continues his outreach work through a social media platform called Cosmos. Even today, I sit here in America in, in a safe place where they cannot harm me, but every time I post something, I talk about these superstitious ideas and I try to fight it with, uh, with, with science and, and I have tens of thousands of views and they, they get shared. I definitely get a lot of, uh, threats, you know, and warnings from some people and some people hate me for that, but then I slowly, the numbers are changing and mm. the ones who, uh, actually now there are more people who, who are on my side and, and the number of the opposite people are are, are shrinking. So, mm -hmm. so I'm like, okay, I can uh, thank God for this. I love talking with fellow actors. And this season, I got to talk with the fiercely multi-talented actor, writer, singer, composer, Leslie Odom Jr. 
Leslie just opened in a play on Broadway that got universally rave reviews. It's the play Pearly Victorious, written by Ossie Davis. Sixty-two years ago, the play first opened on Broadway with Ossie in the title role. And I was in the play in one of my first jobs in the theater. I learned a lot watching from the wings. The part of Pearly calls for great reserves of emotion. It's one of those times when an actor has to be able to let go. And Leslie Odom Jr. certainly does. Leslie told me about his own early experience with this, a time when a director wanted more from him. He wasn't coming up with enough emotion on a scale of 1 to 10. When you were working with Billy Porter, I remember in the book this very interesting moment where he's giving you notes about a climactic moment, and he's asking you to open all the way up. You're, you're, at, you're at 9, and he wants you to be at 10 or something like that. Alan, I was at, I was at a 2. <laughs> I, you know, I did from, that from being thing. careful, careful and safe. Right? Oh, I did that thing. Yeah. Like that, that very intellectual thing, because when you get a moment like that in a script, I was aware of what he had written. And I was, I, I also revered Billy as a performer as in he, so I had, here's my hero is directing me. He's written this part for me anyway. And, and I, and I, I'm terrified of wading into his territory as an actor. Mm. Like I, I don't want to, I, I, because I will fall short. You know, and I don't want to do it. And this one night he came into my dressing room and just as a last ditch attempt, you know, he said, you know, I, I, I you're not listening to me. I, I wish that you would trust me. Um, I wish that you would, you know, try this thing that I'm asking you to do. And I, and I, I almost yelled at him, you know, so I said, Billy, I'm not you. I'm not you. You want me to be you and I'm not you. I can't do it like that. And he said, and he, you know, pleaded with me. He said, I don't want you to be me. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I want you to find your version of this thing, but, I, but I'm going to stop asking you, you know, cause you, you're refusing to do it. I just, I just wish that you would trust me. And so I got so angry at him. Alan. Yeah. I went home that, that night. I was so mad that like, if, you know, in my, in my little, my heart still in its protective case. You know, I just, I was so sad that what I was doing wasn't enough for him, but thank God for a great coach, you know, that they're looking that they see more in you than you see in yourself. Yeah. And the next day I came, I was so pissed off. I said, okay, you want me to go to 10? I'm going to go to 17 <laughs> and, and I'll show you, I'll show you. Not only am I going to fail, this whole production's going to fail. <laughs> the audience is going to walk out. They're, they're going to shut the show down. I and I hope you're happy. Like I, Alex, I was, I was so enraged and ready to show him how wrong he was that I went to 17 and then I went to 18 and 25 and 37 and it just, and the sky opened up. It worked. He just helped me break through. Yeah. I mean, he showed me, so many we have we have limits that we've built for ourselves things that we think we can do and what we can't we we build our own ceilings you know and billy just helped me bust through that thing you know he's helped me shatter my own glass ceiling that i built for myself and discover all of this all of the sky you know and so and so now i tell him you know i i came out i don't know if you saw hamilton but i i, I thank billy every t every chance i get i come out at hamilton i'm like how soon can i get to 17 
Like, <laughs> you know, in the opening number, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get there as quick as possible because I, I love that space now. It's the, the abandon of that space. So define it for me a little more clearly. It's a feeling of emotional contact, emotional power, letting yourself get into the emotion with both feet. What, how would you describe it? I would describe it as um, it's daring. It is just out of the limits of my control. Sort of, a, you know, I, I, it is just out of the out of the range of manipulation. Mm. When I when I go to that place, it um, allows me to surprise to be surprised by what's happening. And that's the only way an audience is going to ever be surprised is if I'm surprised. Yeah, that means so much to me, to be surprised, to be spontaneous, to be present, to not be thinking of what I'm, what I'm going to do and why I'm going to do at each moment. That's right. There's a full body conviction and commitment. Yeah. Let it go. Let it fly. Mm. Mm. Like Coltrane, you know? Interestingly, someone else I talk with this season about being present is the commentator and writer David Brooks. His book on how to know a person really hit home with me. David says we too often settle for a kind of shorthand knowledge of other people, and we never really get to know them. It has to do with how we relate to them. I have this dualism in the book. I say some people are diminishers and some people are illuminators. And diminishers aren't curious about people, and they stereotype, and they label. And one of the things that diminisher will do is called stacking. And that's if I know one thing about you, you supported Donald Trump. Then I proceed under the assumption that I know 8 million things about you. <laughs> right. And that, that's stacking. And illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up and, and warm. They're pure, persistently curious about you. They want to know your backstory. And they make you feel great because they, they really warmly pay attention to the stories you tell about yourself. How does the illuminator do that? What, what, would, be, what would be an example of doing that? Yeah. So I, in the book, I walk people through the phases of really getting to know someone. And I think my favorite one and the one we appreciate too little is the, um, the first meeting, the first gaze. When we're meeting each other, uh, we're unconsciously asking ourselves certain questions like, is this per am I a priority to this person? Am I a person to them? Do they have some respect for me? And the answers to those questions will be communicated in the eyes before anything, words come out of the mouth. And the story I tell in the book is, um, I'm out in Waco, Texas. I'm having breakfast at a diner with a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And she presented herself to me as sort of this strict disciplinarian. She was a teacher and she said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by her. Like she seemed like a tough drill sergeant lady. And into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours, a pastor named Jimmy Durrell, who's, uh, who pastors to the homeless, really wonderful guy. And he comes up to our table, grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93 year old and says into her face, Miss Dorsey, Miss Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that stern drill sergeant turned in an instant into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And it's the power of attention that we cast on others that create, calls a different version of that person into being. And the key fact about that story is that Jimmy is a pastor, 
And so to him, every person he meets is made in the image of God. Every person he looks at, he's looking into the face of God. He's trying to he talk to someone who has a soul of infinite value and dignity. And the, my point is, you can be a Christian or Jew or Muslim or atheist or agnostic, but treating people, everybody you meet, with that level of reverence and respect is an absolute precondition for seeing them well. And once you do that, then you, you really got the ball rolling. A lot of getting to know someone has to do with empathy. And I've noticed that there are a number of different things people mean when they use the word empathy. I asked David what it meant to him. Empathy to me is three different skills. The first skill is mirroring. It's do I catch the emotion you're sending? And to do that, I have to be comfortable in my body and I have to let myself feel what you're feeling. Then the second skill is mentalizing. That's where, say it's your first day at work. I think, well, I remember my first day at work. I remember I was sort of nervous. I was excited to be there. I was a little overwhelmed. And so I can project my experience onto you and develop a theory of what you're going through. And then the third skill is caring. Like con men are really good at reading other people, but we don't say they're empathetic because they don't care. And so to get really good at caring, um, you have to have a kind of emotional intelligence. So babies, if you come home from work and you've got a four-year-old and the four-year-old sees you crying or upset, the four-year-old will give you a Band-Aid or a a teddy bear, which is sweet, but it's not emotionally intelligent because they just don't know. But if if you've got a buddy who's going through an anxiety attack, you don't give them what you would want if you were going through an anxiety attack, like a glass of wine. You do whatever they want to do. You massage their temples or whatever the heck they're asking. And there's one story I love in the book uh, by Rabbi Rabbi Irving Kula. And he said he is, a, he is a, somebody he deals with in his congregation who has a brain injury. And sometimes she just falls to the floor. And uh, she says to him, when, people, when I fall to the floor, everybody immediately wants to pick me up because they're so nervous about seeing an adult lying on the floor. But re- what I really want is for them to get down on the floor with me and just sit with me for a few minutes. And so empathy is knowing, feeling what they're feeling, having a deeper intellectual understanding of what they're going through, and then knowing effectively what they need so you can offer care. I hope these conversations fit with what you need and that you'll join us next week for my conversation with memory expert Frank Felberbaum. Don't forget. And don't forget that we've only been talking about a few of the episodes from next season, all of them filled with great communicators telling great stories. See you next week. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through, here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Savinia takes a shot herself! Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. 
Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.